Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theater's House of the Future, sponsored by the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored by the Berkeley Energy Resources Collaborative. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs. As I mentioned on this stage two weeks ago, every day is Earth Day at Berkeley Lab. When our scientists talk shop, the health of the planet is always part of the conversation. That fact makes the lab very much a part of the Berkeley tradition, leading the way, looking at the big picture. Those of us who work at the lab know this, and because we share in this kind of edgy excitement all the time, we think of science at the theater as our way of sharing that excitement with you. We hope you agree. Tonight's lab experts, Ian Walker, Marianne Piet, and Bruce Nordman, all seated in front of me here, will be in a way talking to you across your kitchen table where all the big decisions are made, right? Think about it. What does the future hold for the roof over our heads, for our HVAC systems, for our windows, for, for building and insulation materials? Are computers going to drive our homes, and we hope with more success than a car company that I might name? Uh, these are all important questions for us as consumers, homeowners, renters, as global citizens. Now, we might not be writing legislation in the halls of Congress, but we do have some power over where and how we live, and we can vote. Tonight, though, you won't be going to the polls. You'll be seated in your seats. We're introducing uh, text voting to Science at the Theater. I'll be talking some more about how that's going to work in a few minutes. Now, I'm very happy to introduce our special guest, State Assemblymember Nancy Skinner, who was well known to many of you. Assemblymember Skinner has a long record of environmental policy activism. We are very pleased that she will not only kick off the evening, but join us at least for the beginning part of the question and answer period. Please welcome Assemblymember Skinner. Thank you. It's great to see so many people interested in the uh, science series. Um, I'm really, really happy that we have LBNL right in our midst um, and that we can access not only the benefits of their research in policies that get enacted in the state, um, also in appliances that get manufactured, uh, new technologies, lots of uh, solar and renewable energy um, activities and such, or, or technologies are a lot of the initial research is done right at LBNL. But we also get the benefit of being able to hear the researchers bring their science down to a very practical matter and talk to us about how it might apply in our daily lives. Um, the discussion tonight is about homes of the future. Um, and I would imagine, but I'll, I don't want to predict because we get to hear that it's going to be talking a lot about new construction and what new homes in some point in the future might look like. But interestingly enough, we have already in California and in Berkeley for sure, a very existing building stock. And interestingly enough, while California has the best energy efficiency building code in the U.S., Title 24, about 70% of our residential properties were built prior to the enactment of Title 24. So that means that many of those properties are not so efficient. Um, now in Berkeley, we've had upgrades to much of our residential properties 
partly because we have a pretty well-educated populace who um, appreciates and values energy efficiency, but also partly because we have a local ordinance, actually two ordinances, SECO and RICO, which uh, mandate that at the time of sale, our properties, our commercial and residential properties are improved from an energy efficiency point of view. Well, I was very fortunate to have the governor just sign into law AB 758, which I introduced in my first year in the assembly, which will bring that similar concept to the commercial and residential buildings all throughout the state of California. So what AB 758 does is directs our California Energy Commission and our CPUC, our California Public Utilities Commission, which oversees our investor-owned utilities, and basically asks them to work together to develop a series of incentives, mandates, and other mechanisms that will help bring up to a much higher efficiency all of our existing building stock, all of the building stock that was built pre-Title 24, so residential and commercial. So I'm uh, eagerly awaiting to see how both the Energy Commission and the PUC uh, uh, develop those regs and how it plays out in our state and helps us improve all of our building stock. And of course, I'll be really looking forward to hearing from our researchers tonight to what kind of ideas they have. And before I turn it back over to them, I'm also very thankful that we are back in a position where we have a federal government that is listening to science, that is allowing science to help <laughs> direct much of its policy, thank goodness. And we have our own former Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory Director Stephen Chu at the helm of the Department of Energy. So it's wonderful. Um, yes, we can clap for that too. <laughs> um, and afterwards in the discussion period, if there's questions that you might have that are other than what's been presented about either things around energy or renewable energy or other policies that the state may be considering, I'd be happy to take those kind of questions. So thanks so much. Okay, now we will talk about the real house of the future. Our first presenter, Ian Walker. Please join me on stage. It's a warm hand for him. I just want to start out by saying, uh, what is a zero energy home? And right here we say net zero. That doesn't mean a house that doesn't use any energy at all, because probably most of you want to do things like have lights to read by, watch a bit of television, that sort of thing, maybe heat your home. So it doesn't mean it uses no energy. The net means that we're going to build a very energy efficient home that doesn't use very much. And we're going to try and get the rest of the energy from using renewables. And Nancy kind of stole my thunder a little bit here. I was hoping that you would all have visions of crazy plexiglass homes out in the desert that are in the shape of pyramids and so on. And those are the homes we can live in, but actually not. Uh, it turns out we're very, very unlikely to me knocking down all of the homes in Berkeley and building new zero energy homes. Um, the homes we're going to be living that are zero energy in the future are going to be the homes that you live in now. And the question is, how do we take the homes that you're living in now and turn them into something else? And that's what I'm going to talk about for about 10 minutes here. Uh, I'd like to start out by saying, or thinking about where, where does all the energy go in a home? And this, this is, this is a, a fun time little chart that's, that splits things up a little bit to give you some sort of guidance. Now, this is averages over the whole state of California. 
So it's not your house or my house, it's averages. And the reason why I want to point that out is that um, if you see here, we've got lots of heat and hot water and all that sort of stuff, but you don't see anything, for example, on air conditioning. And if you uh, lived in the Central Valley of California, your pie chart might use a, look a little different because there would be air conditioning on there instead. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that uh, we probably all are connected to electricity and gas. Uh, PG&E, if you live in, um, in Berkeley. I live in Alameda, so I have Alameda power for my electricity and so on. But this, the split is roughly about a third electricity, two-thirds gas for people living in California. And most of that gas is used to heat homes and used to heat hot water. And the surprising thing is that even if you go out to hot places like Fresno and Bakersfield, they're still using a lot of natural gas, not just for hot water, but also heat their homes. Even though we often think of them as being an air-conditioning-dominated place, we have to do a lot of cooling, they're still using plenty of uh, natural gas for heating. And when we, when we divide things up like this and see where the energy goes, it gives us some idea about what we need to do to homes to eliminate a lot of this energy use. And the two obvious ones you can see from this chart are, let's do something about heating or cooling our homes if we, if we put cooling up there. So we want to make the shell of the building better, better walls, better windows, that sort of thing. And the other thing is hot water, doing something about hot water. But our problem is that until recently, we thought about saving, say, 20% of the energy in a home was a really, really good idea. And that was about how far we could go. But now we're talking about 75%. And so just looking at the heat and the hot water parts of that, it's nowhere near enough. We've got to get at everything in a home. And so here's, here's a sort of a, a shopping list or a laundry list, if you will, of all the things you could do in a home to get that 75%. And I've got a few little illustrations that show what to do. Uh, first of all, we've got to do something about heating and cooling your home. And that means we need better windows, better building envelope. We've got to insulate the home. And you're probably all familiar with insulation, although very, very few homes in Berkeley are insulated. Uh, most of you, if you uh, ripped open the walls, you'd find nothing in there. Uh, but it's not enough just to stuff some insulation there. And you can see from the pictures that I show that when people have actually done this, because there have been some homes built like this, they find they have to build on the outside of the home and add more insulation on the outside. Um, we've got to do something about hot water. And a very popular thing to do, particularly in our climate, is to put a solar hot water system in where you heat or preheat some of the hot water by putting some panels on your roof or in your backyard that capture some sunshine. And we get enough of that. Of course, I'm cheating because I live in Alameda. We always have the donut of sunshine. We don't get the foggy, cloudy days that you guys get. But, so it's a little easier at my house. Um, we do something about lighting. And probably almost all, do all of you have at least one CFL in your home? And if you don't know what a CFL is, we can talk about it later. Well, pretty soon, it might be all you can buy. But um, the, the new stuff coming along is LED lighting, which is sort of what CFLs were 20 years ago. It's going to be yet another step more efficient. And um, moving on from that, we can use less water, pick the right sort of appliances, and so on. One thing I want to point out is it's not enough just to go shopping and buy stuff. We have to do these things right. There's a thousand wrong ways to install the insulation, install the windows, and buy the wrong appliances, and so on. And that is often a step that is, that is overlooked. And historically, in the building industry, this has been one of our big problems. We've been able to buy good insulation for, what, 50, 60 years. Our problems are getting it installed right. You can buy the greatest insulation in the world. If you don't install it right, you won't get the benefits. You won't save the energy. And the very last bullet item, which is the one that causes most people the most grief, is are we going to ask you to change the way you live? 
you want to go to sleep when the little birdies go to sleep and not use any electric light? Do you never want to watch television again? Do you never want to turn on any heat and you'll just put on extra layers when it gets cold, run around naked when it's hot, all that sort of stuff? Do you want to change your life? Now, plenty of people, and some of them work at the lab, and I bet some of you are here in the room, have made lifestyle changes to, to save energy, and that's, that's fair enough. But what we want to be able to do is reach everybody. But when you want to reach everybody, there are far, far fewer people willing to change their lifestyles to save 75%. And that, that's why it becomes a bit of an issue. Uh, one of the things that can help if you want some more specific advice about your home, I just gave some very general numbers there for uh, energy use across the state, is to uh, go to this wonderful website. It's the Home Energy Saver. It's hosted by the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. So, so you can go there, enter a little bit of information about your home, and it'll give you some clues and some tips about energy savings, you, uh, things you can do in your home, and very rough estimates of how much energy you're going to use or where you could save those things. And um, this is just uh, this is a, a fun site because you can sort of play around a little bit by saying, what if I did this, what if I do that, and see how much your energy can change in your home. The... I said all those wonderful things, and, and, and it seems so easy. Right? We'll just go out and buy some insulation and some new windows, and we'll, we'll fix everything. And, of course, you all know that the reason why we haven't all already done that is because it costs money. And it costs real amounts of money. Uh, to get to that 75% savings is very, very difficult. And the people who have already done that, and there's probably something like 100 to 200 homes nationwide where people have done this sort of very, very deep retrofit to their homes successfully. They spent in the range of fifty to $100,000. It's quite a lot of money. I can't afford it right now. But this is just to give you some perspective. So they found that a lot of it was the PV systems that let them get to that net zero. They needed that electricity generated on site. And they, on average, spent something like $30,000 on, on PV. And if we want to reduce this cost, there's, there's a couple of ways to go. We can make those insulation systems uh, better windows, try and make them less expensive, make them easier to install, because something like two-thirds of that cost is the labor to get all this done. It's not buying the insulation or buying the windows or buying the light bulbs. It's paying someone to do it. And so a lot of these homes have actually been done by uh, crazy geeks like me where they did all the work themselves and made it a little cheaper, but we can't expect everybody to do that, right? So we have some serious cost issues that we still have to address. And... I, boy, would I love to get rid of that on-site generation. And uh, maybe we will. We'll talk about that in a minute. Firstly, I wanted to just rewind a little bit. So all, all of that has been talking about what you could do to a home that you already live in. Well, what I'm saying is those are technologies that we already know of. You can go to Home Depot and buy all the stuff you want to build a 75% energy-saving home. The problem is it's going to cost you a lot of money. In a new home, it's much, much easier to do all those things like have better insulation, better windows, better appliances. You don't have to tear a house apart or build a lot of extra wall on the outside or take old windows out and put new ones in. So a lot of those labor costs are far, far diminished. In fact, the labor costs really don't change to build a zero-energy new home compared with a regular new home. We still have the cost of putting PV on the roof and stuff like that, but um, it makes it a little easier. The other thing we do with a new home is something which is very un-American, and I'm allowed to say it because I'm not one, and that is you could live in a smaller home. Now, in Berkeley, of course, you already, if we look at national averages, you're already living in small homes. But across the country, your average new home is approaching something like 3,000 square feet. It's quite a substantial mansion, right? I mean, you guys all know this. 
if you just built a house that was, say, only 1,200 square feet instead of 3,000, right, and took the money that you save by making it smaller, the house would be cheaper and would be a zero-energy home. It would actually cost you less. But you'd have to live happily in a smaller home like people lived in in the 1950s. And once again, that gets back to issues of lifestyle and so on. But I contend that, you know, maybe it's not so bad. But if we don't change the size of the homes, that fifty dollars to $100,000 cost increment, it gets down to about $25,000, and people are working on making that even smaller. Um, so I talked about just then what we can do now, you know, what you could do now in your homes, what we're doing now in new construction. Um, but sometimes it's, it's, it's okay to look a little bit into the future, and I wanted to, like, hit on just a few things. Uh, first of all, a lot of those issues I talked about where we can have all this wonderful stuff, but if it's not installed right in your home, it won't work very well. A lot of that comes down to the mentality that we have in the building industry, which is that the lowest first cost is the only thing that matters. So automatically, we are selecting the very worst contractor. We are selecting the very worst way to get a house built because we've said we want it as cheap as you can do it. So everybody, the entire business has rushed to the bottom. We have to get out of that mentality. We have to imagine that people actually live in homes and want to live in nice homes that perform well and don't need very much maintenance because they were built properly in the first place. We want to imagine people are going to pay a little bit extra to live well. We do that in many, many other aspects of our lives in terms of things like we'll buy nice clothes to wear, we'll buy a nice car to drive, and we expect to pay a premium for that. But in housing, the building industry, Everyone is addicted to this idea that, no, we must have the absolute worst. And it's the only acceptable thing is to have the absolute worst. I need to get off that. Okay? So it is okay to pay a little bit more for something better. And I would love it if people would apply that to the houses they lived in, considering the fact that we actually live in them. I think it, But there's some sort of mental disconnect. Um, we, need, we need better ways to do some of these things. We've really got to attack that cost problem, I think, if, if anything's going to become widespread. And, and there's, there's some work being done on that. Um, at the lab, for example, I have, a, I have a few things that are very, very hard to see because of the color contrast, but it doesn't matter. We're working on things like, um, instead of having to have a bigger air conditioner or an air conditioner, make your air conditioner work harder, we'll put a cool roof on your building for when you're air conditioning to reduce a lot of those air conditioning loads. We're looking at smart windows that do things like, in the, in the winter, they will let more heat in than in the summertime. We're looking at things like uh, ways to ventilate your home. Because if we've made these homes lovely and airtight to try and save energy, the last thing we want to do is to have bad indoor air quality, whatever reason, whether you're worried about moisture problems or odors or, or getting rid of dust and other pollutants. So we need to still ventilate our homes. But right now we do this in a very, very crude way. We just turn a fan on, for example, and let it run. We need to stop doing that and have a smart way to do it instead. And the last thing I was talking about is this whole idea of living in a high-quality home. We need a way to test homes to know if they're high-quality or not. And right now, our test methods are pretty crude and, and not very reliable, and we're working on making those things a lot, lot better. Um, this problem I'm talking about here with, with heritage, I live in a lovely old home in Alameda. And when I think about how am I going to insulate my home, I've got this beautiful hardwood paneling inside. I don't want to drill any holes in that. And I'm sure some of you people live in very nice craftsman cottages in Berkeley with that are architecturally very pleasant to look at. You don't want to change how it looks from the outside, and you probably don't want to damage any of the interior finishes. So we have a big challenge, because there are lots of houses like that. 
where we, can't, we simply can't do things like change the appearance of the windows because the city won't let us, even if we wanted to. And even if we wanted to, maybe we like the look of those old windows. So how are we going to develop new products that let us keep our houses look beautiful because we like the way they look, but still do something in an energy-efficient way? Um, looking far, far, far into the future, so this is true crystal ball glazing now, eventually we're going to live in all-electric homes. We won't be burning natural gas in our homes anymore because it'll be all gone. <laughs> and so when we're planning for the future, we need to think about how to make our homes more electric because all of those things that we do with natural gas at home, whether it's cooking, making hot water, heating, we can do all, the, all of those things electrically. What we have to be a little bit careful about is where the electricity comes from. And I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about all those PV panels on roofs. I'd like to see those go away right now. I think that what we need to do is keep our grid, but put stuff into the grid that is from renewables and take it out. So we don't have to have something on every single roof. And the reason why I say that is there's a whole lot of wasted stuff going on there. Every single home has to have all these clever electronics to connect it to the grid and look at the meters and so on. We don't need to do that. We can save a lot of time, effort, and money and make things a lot cheaper to go renewable if we do it on a very, very large scale. Don't do it on every single home. Um, the other thing we need to do is a lot of renewables don't happen all the time. And I'm thinking of the ones you're thinking of, like the sun shines during the day, but at night when you want to turn on electric things like lights, there's no sunshine. You need to store it. Uh, same thing if we're going to go with wind and wave power, the storage issues. Now, we're, we're a bit lucky here in the East Bay in that we have things like water hills. And I'm a mechanical engineer, and when I see that, and I think about storage, I think about I'm just going to have a pump, right? And I'll pump it up. When I've got it, let it flow back through the pump during electricity later. We can't do that everywhere, mind you, but we can certainly do it here uh, in the East Bay. But I think we've got to look, about, look around the state and around the nation and think of ways of having large-scale scale storage of our renewables. Because in 100 years from now, we pretty much guarantee that's where we'll be. There's really no way out, right? We're going to have to go there eventually, so we should think about it a little bit now. And... Uh, that's all from me, and now you can hear from Mary Ann. So I'm going to, um, I'm Mary Ann Piet, and I am uh, work on something called demand response, my, and I'm going to talk a little about my orb here, which is still finding the signal from PG&E. Um, so before I go through the slides themselves, I want to introduce a concept that I want you to think about. Um, I was here a couple of years ago, and I'm going to use some of the same material that I presented then. Uh, and the material here is more about the home. So um, we're going to talk not about how much energy you use, but when you use it. Because in California, I'm going to talk a little about the electric grid. And Ian was a, it was a great introduction from Ian because we're thinking now about the fact that we're going to have more electrification. And as you know, we're probably going to have electrification of our cars as well. So I'm going to start with the basic idea of power versus energy. Because um, uh, we, we really want people to understand the difference. Uh, so we use a watt as a joule per second. And a 100-watt bulb is, is a sort of a classic unit that we can think of. Um, and, and, a, and a kilowatt hour is uh, 1,000 watts for one hour. So it gives us some sense of scale as we think about energy units. Uh, so that's 10 100 watt um, bulbs for one hour. Now, 
The very interesting thing about the electric grid is that in California, the peak demand is growing faster than the base load. And Ian was talking a lot about homes in our area, but homes out in the Central Valley uh, use a lot of air conditioning. So as we've had a more inland growth, our peak has been growing faster than the base load. And the peak is very expensive. We have more power plants we need. We need more transmission system. We have more uh, uh, transmission and distribution. And what's really interesting is how, how steep this curve is. So as we get to towards those peak hours, um, which is about 50,000 megawatts, um, you can see that uh, we, as we go from 45,000 megawatts to 50,000 megawatts, that's 5,000 megawatts, and it's less than 1% of the hours. Okay? So it's a very steep peak, and that's a very expensive system. It also makes the system more, less reliable because the grid is at capacity. So when we have blackouts and brownouts, it's because we're, our consumption is exceeding the capacity of the grid. And those hours are very expensive. Um, so the, our winter peak is much less. Uh, and we, we, we really want to reduce these hours because they cause the system to be more expensive. And right now, people pay prices that don't reflect that, that expensive time there. So we want, California has a policy of trying to move towards a time when people actually see those prices. Um, and that's what this device is here. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now, in California, most of what we do today is we actually phone people up, and we have spare the air days. And on those days, people are asked to change their electric loads. And they actually phone up and email uh, the buildings. And the technology I'm going to be talking about is technology developed primarily initially for commercial buildings, but it's starting to move into homes. And I'll, I'll explain that. But essentially what's happening is when the grid is full, people are getting phone calls to change their lights or to change their thermostat and to, and to change the services in the building to try to shift the load to times when there's more energy available. So what we've developed is this, this box here. And this box is called a client. And it's listening to a server. And it's got relays on it. And it's basically running an XML code. And we have a couple hundred of these in buildings around the state. Um, and we're starting to do this in homes as well. This is a, a company called Akuacom that all the, the utilities in California offer this technology where we actually allow the uh, prices that are being sent by the utility to be received by this box. And the box is then programmed to change the loads in the building when the signals change. So all year long, it's normal, normal, normal. But then uh, the signals go to moderate or high, and the building is pre-programmed to change its load. So here in the picture, um, I have a, a person who's outside. And they could be at the, at the golf or at the ball game. And the building still changes its thermostat and its lighting level. And this system here is listening to price signals. So we're actually automating people to respond to prices. And we're starting to move towards a time when you will see higher prices on hot summer days. So right now, you're paying mostly flat prices. But you might have lower prices at night and higher prices in the day. But on the special days, where there's maybe 10 a year, prices actually uh, maybe a dollar a kilowatt hour. And, and you can pre-program your building to, to change using something like this. Now, the important thing about this is that it's, you don't need a box. It's actually all internet code. 
So 50 control companies now offer this technology built into their uh, control system. And they, this company, Akuacom, was just bought by Honeywell. And uh, so your thermostat of the future can receive these signals. We've worked with GE and Whirlpool, so your dishwasher of the future can listen to these signals. So you'll have the ability to set your price responsiveness. If somebody's home and you don't want the thermostat to change, you might not change it much at all. But if you know there's something happening, you can pre-cool the building, and you can actually develop strategies in the home to be responsive. Now, this device over here is called an energy orb. And this is um, still finding the PG&E signal. Um, it will turn to blue when um, it finds the signal. Right now, it's booting. And this technology was initially developed for stock traders. And it's called an ambient orb device. And it, um, it, it is designed to be in the background. And it'll change colors when the electric price goes up. So this is a feedback device that's, that's been developed to help you understand when the price goes to higher prices, it'll go to orange or to red. Um, right now, it's, you can see it's booting through these colors. It has these little LED lights inside it. And it'll find a, a pager signal, um, and it'll go to blue. So essentially, um, we're developing technology that allows your home to be responsive to the electric grid. This is what a demand response aggregated shed looks like. And this is from commercial buildings. We've been doing this with IKEA and Walmart and Target. And uh, Chabot Space Sciences is one of our buildings, Bank of America, uh, data centers, schools, all sorts of buildings. And as I said, it's starting to move into the homes. So you'll have the opportunity to uh, have your home participate in these, these uh, programs. And, and devices will be listening to signals that are generated from the electric utility. Now, this is my last slide. And this slide is important because you've probably all heard about the, what, well, we call it the Prius effect. So that if you have feedback, do people change their behavior if they actually have feedback? And uh, Ian was talking a little about the home of the future and the net zero home. This is, my talk is a good transition between Ian's and Bruce's because Bruce is going to talk a lot about information and networking. But what we know is that um, people actually like to understand their consumption habits better. So you'll get information not just on how much you're using, but when you're using it. So you can find out what happened, what's happening in my house at night. Is, how big is the load at night versus the daytime when I'm awake and cooking or, or watching TV? And I could actually turn something on and off and see the change. So right now, we're moving towards a time where you're going to have more information. And there's a lot of interest in research on behavior and what's the right way to display information that people take action on. So is it, is it dollars? Is it CO2? Is it comparison with their neighbor? Um, what's the right information? And, and that's, that's actually one that people know, uh, that, that people respond to, is how do I compare with my neighbors? Do I have three teenagers, and, and they don't have any kids at home? Or what is the difference? Um, so it's a, it's a world where we're going to use the information to, to communicate with people, but we're also going to use the information to model your consumption and maybe even giving you recommendations on what if you retrofitted your refrigerator? What if you got a new device? So you could use these things as tools like that home energy saver a tool that Ian showed. Uh, so it's, a, it's an exciting time for building energy research. And it's an exciting time for energy efficiency because the internet uh, and the smart grid are allowing us to do things we couldn't do before. So we're really putting together um, the work of tools for information management to help us uh, have better information on energy consumption patterns. So oh, that's it. I want to give a special hand to uh, our next presenter, Bruce Nordman, who
broke his ankle several weeks ago, but still decided to come and make a presentation tonight. Thank you. In the future, bones will heal faster, so that'll make life a lot better. So I want to um, take a little different tack. Most of what we tend to do is start from the present and incrementally work towards um, the, the future one step at a time. And that's absolutely necessary um, and appropriate. Um, but there's another approach to this, which is to start from the future. And I take about 20 years in the future as my uh, reference point, And then work backwards towards the present, decide where we want to end up, what do we need to do if we actually want to get there. And it's really critical to take both approaches. So I've become convinced that the, the networking aspect of buildings is what's going to be the, most, the biggest change in our houses in general, and that can actually have good energy impacts. So uh, the, the picture on the left is from 1929 from Buck, Mr. Fuller's Dymaxion House. And this was his idea of the house of the future, and he thought that it could actually be mass-produced uh, very quickly with available materials in the 1930s, and that is the type of house people might live in. Now, this house on the right is actually my house, which was remodeled recently, so it probably in 20 years it's going to look very, very much like it does today. So we now have a difference of 100 years between these two houses of the future. And in fact, it's the, it's the futuristic house, which is the old one. And in fact, the, the old-looking house, which is the, uh, the new one, as, as several people mentioned, our houses today are really sort of are our houses of the future. So um, when, when you look, when people have thought about house of the future in the past, over the last 100 years or so, uh, they tended to have three major goals, to make them comfortable, efficient, and affordable. And actually, if you look in the popular literature or uh, when people do houses of the future today, the affordability sometimes goes out the window because they make these monstrous houses. And I don't know if they're efficient, but they are, are certainly trying for comfort. But what they've always tended to do is focus on the, the structure of the house and the materials because that's sort of the, the tools that they have at hand. And so that's sort of how they can conceive of, of transforming the future. Um, and so that's really the paradigm of physics. That's what you're, what you're working with, is the physics of materials and the physics of structures. Um, now, this is the same Monsanto house of the future from Disneyland, uh, sort of better living through chemistry, which I realize actually is uh, DuPont's slogan, not Monsanto's slogan. So that was a mistake on my part. Uh, luckily, I checked it this afternoon. But in any case, so you know, we, there was, is, is chemistry the new paradigm? You know, people have thought about biology as a new paradigm for buildings. But again, another new possible paradigm is... Um, is information. So um, in, in this book on yesterday's, yesterday's houses of tomorrow, um, they talk about these, these past houses of the future. And, and this first quote uh, gets to um, sort of the, the tragedy of architecture. And I, I, I studied architecture my, myself. And the ideal thing you do is you design a house for a specific set of people at a specific point in their lives. You take a snapshot and you make it perfect for them. But of course, most architecture is not designed for specific people. And even when it is, most of the time, those people are older than when you designed it for them, or there's other people living there. So it's really, we, we can never make the structure do what we want it to do to express uh, the individuality and what people really want at that particular time. And that quote was from uh, almost 200 years ago, which I found uh, pretty amazing. And then another quote was talking about how people's activities within buildings were transformed. And this was the introduction of plumbing, and electricity. Now, I have never lived in a house without plumbing or electricity, so I don't actually appreciate just how much of a difference it makes. And I guess when you go camping, you appreciate that you act very differently. 
So what we would really like to do is introduce a new utility into the houses of the future um, in order to actually make them better. Because that's really what we want to do. We, we want them to be more efficient, but we also want them to be fundamentally uh, better and more pleasant. And then the last thing is, is what had once been luxuries soon became necessities. I certainly remember before uh, telephone answering machines and before mobile phones, um, thinking that those were sort of look excessive luxuries. But now, of course, I'm dependent on them as much as, um, as anyone else. So when things are useful, they can happen quickly. So to summarize, looking at sort of the past versus the future, the sort of the, the paradigm of physics to looking one more of information, which doesn't make the physics any less important and useful. It's absolutely as necessary as ever. Um, it's just we're adding something to it. The tool you have is your architectural or your structural design of the house or the building in general, and, and adding to that what I call a building network, because it's not just for houses. We really want it to be universal towards any type of building. And then the way you express this is through either the static structure of the building in one case or through dynamic activity as people interact with their buildings. So um, what is a building network? So it's, in principle, it's the notion that everything within a building is, in principle, you know, could be networked to each other and communicating and coordinating. Now, in 20 years, are you going to have all these things in your house network? No, but you have some of these networks today. Um, you know, and a third of uh, TV sold this year will have, a, have an internet connection. And more and more things will get network connections incrementally as people find them useful for various purposes. And once they can communicate and co cooperate, they can share information. They can give each other suggestions as what they want them to do. Um, and, and you can do useful things. Certainly, lighting is a case where you can imagine, well, if you walk into a room, the room should know you're there and turn on the lights appropriately. Or if you leave, they can turn them off. And similarly, with, um, with audio information, the, the sound should come on when you want it and go off when you don't want it. If you're in a room by yourself and the phone rings, why should you go pick up the phone? Why not just talk like people do in their car sometimes, where the microphone and the speaker is there? We have to stop embedding ourselves in the past way of doing things and think towards how could things actually be better. So, um, so that's, that's what a building network is. It's when anything can potentially communicate. So um, now why would you do this? Well, you would do this because um, they would do useful things for us, like, like a mobile phone or an answering machine or, or any of these things. Um, once they're useful, people will go out and buy them. And actually, they'll go out and they'll buy them not on the energy budget, which is, which is a critically important thing here. So we need to design our building networks around the needs of people first, not for any other purpose, well, like energy, but people's functional needs first. Um, so we can, as best as possible, determine what it is that people really want in terms of heating or cooling or lighting or sound or vision or whatever it is, and then provide that and provide no more than that. So. Um, and also in terms of why we might do this, the, the internet has, over the last 20 years, has really transformed our relationship to the information world in terms of how we gather and consume and share information. It's really just, uh, it's, it's been like another new utility in the sense of, of transforming people's activities. So it's my belief that over these coming decades, building networks will serve the same thing, but for the physical world, not for the information world. Um, and it's the physical world where we cause uh, environmental damage. So that's tremendously important. So the key is that when people invented the internet you know, 30, 40 years ago, they had no idea the things we would be using it for today. But they developed an, uh, an architecture where potentially any element on the network could communicate with any other element for whatever useful purpose people might 
think of in the future. So that's the critical thing, is we need to develop this infrastructure so that anything can communicate um, for what we can't imagine yet. So we might have apps for buildings. You go to your local app store and you get, uh, you know, somebody out there in uh, Bangalore writes some new way of things to do something and you download it and then suddenly your life is better now because uh, your building is more adaptable uh, to whatever you want. But actually a building is really sort of too big a unit of scale to operate in. What we really want is um, to start with apps for rooms. So you might have uh, this, your room of the future. Now, the point here is, is not that we would have high-resolution display screens on every wall service, but more that, the, 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 that our living environments would be much more dynamic and adaptable to our needs uh, to give us what we want, but give us no more than what we want. Um, so, how do we do this? Well, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, to and fro in the, uh, the economy about what's the hardware going to be to make this happen, but that's really, that's, Eventually, that will be unimportant. Once things can communicate um, interoperably, it doesn't matter what the, what the physical layer is for how things communicate. Um, another point is that, like the internet, devices will, for the most part, manage themselves. They'll, they'll manage their own power state or their, mo their own functional state. And then they'll do things differently by communicating with each other, but they're their own master. And it's much easier to take a collection of objects and have them cede some amount of authority to some central control, because there is some role for central control than it is to take central control and then disperse it around um, sort of to, to these other objects. And we can think of analogies to sort of political systems and realize that, that you know, how, how that works. So there are going to be central devices to coordinate activities and coordinate journalist policies, but it's really each device needs to be uh, intelligent and communicating. And what we want to do is, as close as possible to the people involved, make the decisions relevant to them, because that's where the information is that's relevant, and that's where the, action, the things you could do that are actions, based on all these networks' devices are, that can actually do things. So distributed rather than centralized. So energy. I'm most of the way through my talk, I promise, and I haven't really talked about energy at all. Now, so why is that? It's because people are not going to put in these networks primarily for energy purposes. They'll put them in there for other purposes, which actually is good because we're not buying them on the energy budget. We don't have to convince people to do it for an energy purpose. They'll go off and do it on their own. So then what we need to do is make sure that te the technologies that people install have features in them which allow us to save energy, sort of like a sort of Trojan horse. Um, another way to think about this is that the, the, the energy is the tail and the functionality is the dog. You know, that's, that's really what's driving it. We're just kind of going along for the ride. So, once we provide people what they want, then we can try to minimize energy. And I'm confident that through things like this, we can actually um, save a lot of, um, a lot of energy if, if we actually design them right up front. I, I used to work on trying to reduce paper use of just ordinary office paper. And people would say, oh, in the future, we'll have the paperless office because we've got this information technology. Now, the people who are inventing information technology did not have a goal of reducing paper use. And in fact, people who were trying to reduce paper use were never involved in the development of that technology. So it's no surprise that it didn't work out so well. Um, but we have an opportunity to do it right this time. Um, so um, not what really comes down to the question of what do people want? How does the room that you're in know what it is that you want? And that's actually, I think, a very complicated question in terms of how devices will infer your preferences, and so I'm for the most part going to put that aside, except to note that some of these things are your sort of static preferences about how 
how you know hot or cold you like spaces and how bright you like lights and such. Um, and some of this dynamic that's going to vary with the time of day, the activity you're engaged in. Um, but there is this element of electricity prices. So what we need to do is have every individual device be price responsive to whatever the price on the grid is and have a sort of a conceptual dial like this where zero means I don't care what the price is and 10 means I really care a lot. So if you've got your medical device or your computer with your you know, important information on it, you know, you're going to put it at zero. And maybe your refrigerator you put at three. And maybe your air conditioner you put at seven. And maybe your pool pump you put at 10 because it doesn't really matter when the pool pump goes. So you can, devices will come with good defaults and you can easily express your preferences in some way. Maybe like that, maybe other ways, I don't know. But you have some way for the building to, dis, to determine what you want. Internally, it will then go through some complicated procedure to define how it should operate and how the refrigerator should let the temperatures float a little bit. But fundamentally, the, the interface for the person is very simple. And the good thing about this is that with the exception of uh, vehicle charging, there's no actual direct coordination with the grid. Everything is accomplished through, uh, through prices, which makes the meter as simple as possible, which is critical for, for designing things. So how do we get there? So as I noted, this will happen incrementally. It's already happening incrementally. Everybody in this room probably has some one or more devices that's networked, whether it's your phone to the phone system or to your local Wi-Fi, your computers, your consumer electronics, or increasingly digital. Um, and we'll just simply add things to this. It's not going to be a, you'll spend $20,000 and add a lot of hardware. You can do that, but most of the people in this room, including myself, are not going to do that. We'll do it incrementally. Um, when we design these systems, it's not about the grid. You, know, you wouldn't design a house by starting in the middle of the uh, Interstate 80. You would design your house based on things that are important in the house. So we can, we can get rid of this, uh, this smart grid stuff and, and stop being distracted by that. We have to throw away early technology because when, when we're trying things out, when we're experimenting, a lot of those experiments work, won't work out well and technology gets better. So we don't want to get hung up on things that we can do today or tomorrow and have that impair what we can do in 20 years. So we don't need to be so upset about, um, about this experimental uh, part times. Perhaps the, the most important goal of all of this is what I call universal interoperability, where any device should work in any space with any person. And regardless of what content you're on, um, things should just all work. Now, that's not going to be 100% successful, but like within this country, you go to a store, you buy a, a, a device that you plug into the wall, and it plugs into any plug. And that's sort of the type of universal interoperability uh, we need to work towards. And finally, what people should demand is they should demand the highest possible functionality of their building networks and the most possible simplicity. And that's a tremendous design challenge, and that's what we need to be working on over these coming decades is how to, how to get those things together. Um, because if we don't do that, we'll end up wasting energy because, and we'll have lower functioning um, buildings. But thank you. So we'll start with here. Uh, please, uh, when I give you the microphone, uh, identify yourself and then keep the questions as short as you possibly can. We'll start right here. Teddy Crawford for the last speaker. It just occurred to me this might be an international problem coordinating it. I'm sorry, what's the question? Is it international? Oh, absolutely, because if you want devices to work internationally, um, they, they have to be global standards. But we, we do that all the time with... Um, a lot of telephones, such um, items, you know, certainly Ethernet or USB, um, an awful lot of things are international. You know, the, the, the World Wide Web is international in terms of how its plumbing is uh, constructed. 
Can I make a quick comment? It's interesting. We in California developed some of this uh, pricing messaging systems, and we're we're getting a lot of pushback from other states that it, it was invented in California and it doesn't fit in other states. And so I, I think it's a good question about international standards. We actually have challenges state by state as well. Uh, I actually think that that the um, the appliances are a way that some of this interoperability is going to get in homes. You can buy a thermostat today with something called a USNAP portal that can talk Zigbee, Wi-Fi, or Z-Wave, or FM broadcast. So we're starting to see devices that are going to come into homes with little modules that you can plug into them, and the modules that allow them to communicate over different networking infrastructures. Our preference is Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi, um, which is internet, you're, if you have a wireless server in your home, um, we are trying to develop um, systems that can use that existing infrastructure to communicate. So your electric meter, your dishwasher, your thermostat, and your lights might be able to communicate through a common internet system. Um, but I would comment that uh, it could be that it's our appliances and such that do that, and partly because young people now, they really are already digital. They have digital minds. They do everything digitally. Right. All right, let's just take um, uh, water meters, for example. The entire city of Sacramento and county of Sacramento are not water metered. So residential and uh, commercial properties have no water meters, things that we totally take for granted. And we, of course, look at our ebb mud bills and we look at our usage because we know we're charged on our usage. Uh, but we've had water meter technology for all this time. We've had droughts and the whole bit, and yet we've got large parts of the state that have no water meters. So I think we can find uh, a lot of pockets of resistance in different types of either, whether it's uh, utility structures, governmental structures, who knows. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really true, because none of this is going to happen overnight. I mean, Bruce made the point that these things have been evolving for some time, and uh, there are iPhone apps home automation. You can control your thermostat from an iPhone app today. Um, but not everybody wants to. The iPad is a, is it, will be an in-home display device, the new, the new Mac iPad. So there are technologies coming. Which ones are going to come and how quickly, that we don't know. I would just like to add, add one thing to, to this debate. Um, if we get all of our appliances and our buildings and our hot water down to very, very low amounts of energy required to do all those things, that's my preferred path. Then we don't have to have all this networking trying to figure out how to save the energy. We'll just make sure we don't use it in the first place. So we make sure we have appliances that don't use it. And we'll keep it all simple, hopefully. But, but I'd like to add something to that as well. The, um, Ian, Ian mentioned that um, he wanted grid scale renewables. And the technology that I talked about for changing your loads in your home are actually built to facilitate that as well. So that in, when the wind's coming down and the solar's coming up, we want the loads to be able to be flexible. And not all loads are flexible, but loads that are flexible should be moved to different times of the day. So there is some load leveling done within the home and at the grid level. And that, it's that interaction where there's going to be some opportunities to do things differently. So we have a question over here. Uh, my name's Dan. Uh, my question related to some of this technological change is, um, you know, Appliances and home systems seem to be one of the few places where you don't have to invest so frequently in new materials 
and stuff, because stuff, that stuff still lasts for a long time. And I guess I'm curious, how do you balance, you know, an eight, what sounds starting to sound to me like an 18-month product cycle or something like that, so we can get all this new technology against uh, the material investment in that stuff? Um, you just do it incrementally, and hopefully people just replace the device when it should be replaced for other reasons, and just the new ones will all come with the networking capability, so you won't... You won't throw things away that are perfectly good just to get that, hopefully. Um, so that, that goes along with this incrementalism, I would say. Uh, whether it's fast enough, it's as fast as it's going to be, is my sense. Uh, you, you raise a very good point. Um, in Berkeley here, you have this uh, RICO, when a home is, is bought or sold that requires some sort of energy upgrades. But relatively few homes are bought and sold every year. And if we waited for RICO to work its way through the system, um, I'll be dead before we've got to all the houses in Berkeley. And probably, I'm not sure if I'm the youngest person here, but most of you will be too. And, and we have to move faster than that. And, and you're right, it is an issue. And, and yeah, if I just bought a, a new refrigerator three years ago, if a super-duper one comes along that uses half the energy today, but my, my old one is good for another 10 years, should, should I swap it out? And, and we have to think about things like the embodied energy in the things we might throw away. You know, it took a lot of stuff to make that refrigerator. We want to throw it out. And you're right, that, that absolutely is going gonna, is gonna to slow things down. But really, there's um, no simple answer to that. In, in other words, I, I don't think we want to um, obsolete things that aren't obsolete too quickly. And I think some patience will be required. A couple, couple comments there. Not only a lot of embodied energy in all those products, that whether it's your cell phone or your uh, computer laptops now that seem to, who said 18 months, even less sometimes, uh, or your uh, iPod or your other listening device, but there's also a lot of toxics in those materials, at least as they are made today. So when we, with as much as we want innovation, we are uh, creating a lot of different hazards by virtue of you know changing them over so quickly. But on a little comment on RICO, <laughs> I can't help it, but I authored it. Um, we now have uh, the highest energy efficiency per square foot building stock of any place in California. Berkeley does. Um, but just as the last little comment on that, it is why in my bill, AB 758, I did not mandate it that it must only be done at point of sale because I wanted it to happen faster. Point of sale is allowed to be a trigger if Energy Commissioner PUC wants to use it, but I didn't mandate it that it be only because I didn't want to wait so long. On this point of how fast is fast enough to get the results we want, um, you know, Ian made an excellent point that the best thing we can do is, is reduce this, the size of um, the buildings we occupy of any sort. And if we can increase, increase the quality of spaces, perhaps we can decrease the quantity that we require um, in exchange. And that would be a tremendous benefit. Here's another question. Uh, this is Mohammed. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, I live in a 1,200 square feet house. My electric bill is $900 and ab above. I wonder if you can tell me, I put all the new, brand new appliances, and uh, so my bill is around $900. And windows are all thermal windows, double pane, and I put every, uh, whatever I could see in the market, I put in into the house, 
but still I wonder why it's so expensive. <laughs> is that $900 a month or $900 a year? Yes, sir, $900 a month and I live in East Bay. I hope there's uh, no representative of PG&E here. <laughs> but uh, did you uh, just get a smart meter recently? <laughs> uh, would appear that some, not all, of the smart meters um, have had some problems and also that uh, some of the meter readers haven't been fully trained on how to read the smart meter. So we have noticed that some people's bills have increased since the installation of the smart meter. But that may not explain your particular circumstance. Well, uh, I used to pay $225 since they put a smart meter, and that was the outcome. And I think you need to call PG&E and have them. No, seriously, seriously, if your bill has gone up since the installation of the smart meter, you do need to have them come, call them and come out and check it because the reader, the meter reader may not be reading it correctly. We have already discovered that. And there also may have been a problem in the installation. So thank you very much for coming. Thank our Berkeley Lab scientists. We'll see you in September. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.